Mr. Greg Hill. Greg, how you doing? I'm good. How's it going, Joe? Good, good. I guess before we uh, we get things going, first of all, thanks for doing this. I'm uh, yeah, I'm I'm pumped to do this. We had a good conversation over the weekend, and uh, I think it's good to uh, catch up, see what you've been up to. But um, I, I guess the first question is before we really even get into it, you, you kind of disappeared. You know, kind of went off the radar a little bit. Um, what yeah. happened? And uh, yeah, what what have you been up to? Uh, yeah, man, I appreciate you having me. It's, it's really cool. And, uh, just to answer that, um, you know, I've, I've been, I've been in the sport every day of my life since I was 10 as a racer, um, you know, working for different companies, doing my own companies. And this last, uh, you know, the last 12 years, uh, as of, well, beginning of this year, we've been doing GHP for about 12 years. And I just, found that the market was, for frames anyway, was just super saturated and it was very difficult. It was one of those situations where we're making improvements on products, we're lowering our prices, we're, we're selling less, less volume because there's so many, you know? Mm-hmm. There's over 150 frames out there for people to choose from. So you have a situation where the uh, customer base is shrinking, but the, uh, the company base is increasing, which... I just found it was just getting frustrating. So I just tapped out on it. Um, I did disappear off the radar in terms of the BMX business. Um, I, I still taught my clinics. I've been doing clinics for probably 27 or 28 years now. Um, I did my two-day clinics, kind of just probably did five or six of them just because I like to teach. Um, <clears throat> and then I just needed a perspective. I needed to stand back and take a step back and kind of find a new career path, keep the teaching going, and uh, and just, you know, a lot of people don't understand. They might think, well, you know, okay, so you stopped doing it, so, you know, what's the big deal? Well, what's the big deal is you're emotionally invested in this thing. It's got your name on it, you know? And after 12 years of doing it, it, it it's like a, a part of you died, and it's like I need to just back up a little bit and just kind of regroup, you know? And that's what I did. So, hmm. cool, cool, cool. Um, I guess let's go back to the start, Greg. Uh, the start of your BMX career. You know, how how did you find BMX? Um, and uh, yeah, how did you get into it? Okay, um, <clears throat> like most kids, I, I basically rode my BMX bike. Oh, well, I rode my Royce Union all around the neighborhood, and uh, as a kid, I wound up becoming good buddies with this guy that I went to school with. Um, that we would ride with, his name was Tim Gallego. Uh, he, he raced at WSA, Western Sports Roma. And one night, or one day, he says, hey, we're going racing, whatever it was, Friday or Saturday night, you want to come watch? So I said, yeah, that'd be great. Well, like this dude, his mom was dating Chuck Robinson, of, who was the manager for Webco, and we show up, and we're not just going to the track and hanging out, we're going to the track, and he's we're hanging out with... Chuck Robinson and Webco team, and you know, it's like, whoa, these are all the big guys, you know. And I watched him race, and I was like, this is awesome, man. I got to do this. So after I went, I watched him, and then we went out to. They said, hey, you want to come this weekend? We're going to Escape Country, and I'm like, yeah, I'll race. That'll be great. So I went to Escape Country, and I raced. Um, you know, there wasn't ten expert, ten intermediate, ten novice. It was, hey, man, you're ten years old. You're racing ten year olds. And, you know, that's how it was. I mean, running 10 guys in the main event is awesome. So I raced and had a great time, and I got the bug, and I just kept doing it. I just 
What year was that, Greg? It, uh, like, like late <clears throat> 70s? Oh, boy. I started in, like, uh, September of uh, 74. Wow. Uh, that's that's about roughly when I started. Um, and I, you know, got into it and started to race every week. My mom and dad were like, oh, we don't have time. It's going to be hard and some that. And then they took me to my first race. And then, you know, within, like, three weeks, my mom is helping score races. My dad's running the pro shop at this track. And it's like, whoa, I thought we didn't have time. <laughs> You know, it's like, hey, we didn't have time to go to the races. Now you don't have time to watch me because you're <laughs> helping run this stuff. Right. But it's kind of a family deal, you know. We just go every week. And from there, it just kind of took off, man. It must it have been so cool, cool being in the heart of, you know, BMX California, still in California, and the just, yeah, just all the images we still see of those late 70s and, um, you know, early right. 80s pictures. I mean, just being part of that. Did you know what, you was, what was happening at the time or you just kind of, just, no, just no, man. We were, we were like. <clears throat> if anybody says different, they're lying. But we were like kids that were just like would rather be on a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. But mom and dad wouldn't let you or didn't have money. So what was cool is we would go race at like Saddleback or Escape Country, and we'd be racing. And the BMX track is like right over from the motocross track. So you're like, you're going over and watching the motocross races, and you're seeing like guys that are good. You know, they they. It was great. They were side by side, you know. Yeah. We're just trying to emulate the motorcycle gig. Nowadays, it's different, obviously, but the whole thing in the beginning was, this is BMX. It's new. There's no path. There's like, there's no. Well, you know, I want to do this because I want to be like that guy because it wasn't that guy, you know. Like the biggest deal to me was I went to my first race at a skate country that I actually raced, <clears throat> and I was watching. Back then, they used to time the races, so they used to stop watching, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just remember sitting on my bike watching these races, and I seen this guy named John George. Well, John George was like the fastest dude i ever seen in my life. He basically comes out to the track, and I guess Brian Lewis had the track record, and John George's first trip to escape country was my first day I raced. And I watched, as a 10-year-old, I watched him do his lap in the main. He won by, like, 10 bike lengths, and he beat the track record by five seconds. And at that, I was just like, whoa, this guy's awesome. Wow. And uh, just got the bug, you know? And what was cool is, is that that guy did that on a bike that probably wasn't much different than the bike I was on. Not like now, how you go to the track now, and you might be rolling with carbon fiber this and high in that, and you got new kids that might be on entry-level bikes there's such a huge gap in that in that product you know what i mean and back in the day there wasn't mm-hmm. so <clears throat> that was kind of interesting i think i read you turned pro at 14 is that right yeah so, yeah i was uh 14 years old um, what, did, what did you win as an amateur I, I, before that did, did you like dominate amateur like leading into that or you just kind of yeah i um you know i mean dominate is a different on a different level than today is because obviously there wasn't a huge national schedule and this and that. But I raced my first <clears throat> six months were kind of rough. My first race was really like stupid. I was on the gate and the gate dropped and over the first jump, everybody crashed except for me. I was in the first turn by myself, hit my brakes, did a U-turn, came back to find out my buddy Tim was all right. He's on the bottom of the pile. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, I want to make sure you're all right. And he's like yelling at me, turn around, go, go, you don't stop. And anyways, that was my first experience. And um, I figured it out within six months. Um, Got my first trophy. 
second place behind my now wife, Liz Torres at the time, Liz Hill. I got beat by a girl for like freaking ever, dude. So, I, I listened to that when you talked about that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so right after that, <clears throat> 11-year-old, 12, 13, and 14, we were racing the NBA Nationals and ABA Nationals. And I was, I was winning my class pretty much at every race. And for like three and a half, four years, I was the number one rider in my class. And when I was 14, I told my dad, I was riding for Schwinn. I said, look, I'm, I, I'm over it, you know. I just, this is just boring. And I don't mean that like in an arrogant manner. It was just boring. I wanted to race the big guys, you know, because at the time it was the 14 and over class was the biggest class. And then, and then they, you know, a, maybe a year before I decided to turn, they started this thing called the pro class, you know, and it was 16 and over. So I told my dad, I want to, I want to either turn pro or I want to quit. One of the two. Let's, let's, what do we do? And he goes, oh, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'd rather get last place in pro than win my, my extra class. So we talked to Ernie and he's like, all right, you know, you just got to be careful and just, we'll, if you get a couple people to sign in, we'll let you do it. So I raced my first pro race as a 14 year old in Simi Valley and it was just some local race. And I made the main, and I was like, whoa, this is cool. And I'm going down the back straight, and I'm in fourth place. There's like eight guys. I'm mid-packing it, and I'm thinking, I'm actually kind of freaked out. And all of a sudden, I hear this loud pop, you know? Well, I'm following David Clinton. His tire blows out. He pulls to the right, goes off the track. I get third. I won 50 bucks. I was 14 years old and won 50 bucks for doing something I love doing. And what was that, and like 80, 81? That was probably, I mean, I started in 74, so that would have been 78, probably. Oh, wow. That's a hell of a lot of money then, I'm sure, yeah. So, 50 bucks to just be like, whoa, dude, all I did was ride my bike and I got paid. Let's go do this again. <laughs> and um, it was just cool. And that's kind of how I got started on it. And, uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of times people say, Eric, who's the youngest guy to turn pro? Well, we both turned pro at the same age at 14, but I turned pro about five, four months before he did. Mm-hmm. Not that it matters or that anybody cares, but, um, you know, it was cool because him and I, we spent our whole lives racing together, you know, and uh, it's kind of cool. So Yeah. So when did you start, um, you know, I, I didn't really, uh, obviously we didn't start getting, you know, the, the coverage, a little bit of TV, and we're starting to get the magazines in there. You know, you was already on GT by the time we knew who you was. Um, when did you start winning? Yeah. When did you start, like, winning, you know, pro? And uh, when did you get on GT, I guess, 80, 81? Yeah, right around 81. So what happened was at 14 I turned, and then and then roughly after that I turned 15. I was riding for Redline. Um, I was racing all the pro races. What was cool at the time is they let you ride pro and they let you ride your age class. So here I was riding pro and riding 15X, wow. riding pro and riding 16X. And then they were like, okay, now you're pro, you can't ride. So I was, I won a pretty good amount of races when I was 15. Um, I, when I was 16, I struck a deal with, um, here's what happened. It's kind of crazy. So when the inception of GT was this, my dad used to run the pro shop at, at Western Sports Drama, and he knew Gary Turner. One day, he's like, hey, we're going to go see Gary Turner. So we're standing in Gary Turner's garage. I'm like 11 years old. I'm like, this guy's got all his jigs, and he's making frames. My dad starts selling GTs, and he calls them, you know, Pedals Ready GT because the pro shop was Pedals Ready Pro Shop. Well, shortly after that, this dude named, probably five or six months after that whole thing went down, this guy named Richard Long approaches 
Gary Turner and says, I want to buy everything you can make. And he owned Anaheim Bicycle Center. So Gary was like, all right. So he was like making 80 frames at a time. Richard would pick them up. So this is kind of the deal. It started to go. And when I was 16 years old, that thing was kind of moving. And Richard was like, hey, why don't you ride? I was in between rides. Why don't you ride a GT frame? And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pay you. We'll give you a contingency or whatever. So I rode the frame. Um, and, it, and I was riding for Shimano, and I was winning some races. Um, that was in, uh, I want to say that was like 1980. Mm-hmm. I was winning some races, and we wound up at this race in La Mirada, and I'm standing there in the grass. There's, you know, we're at the race. There's not people right next to us, but I got Gary Turner on one side and Richard Long on the other side. And Richard says, Gary, I want to put him on our team. We're going to start it. We're going to, we're going to bring a pro in and want Greg to ride for us. And we're going to pay him. And Gary says, we're not going to pay him. We're never, we're not paying anybody. We're never going to pay anybody. And Richard says, these guys argue, dude, right in front of me. And Richard, Richard says, we're going to pay him because we want to go to the next level, blah, blah, blah. Gary says, well, we're not. And Richard looked at me and he put his hand out. He says, hey, welcome to the team. <laughs> talk to me this week. Let's get everything going. Don't listen to this guy. You're riding for GT. And they said that right in front of Gary. And were they partners already? Then? Point, they were partners. Yeah, right. they had gotten to be partners at that point. Right. And uh, I got all my stuff. And uh, that would have been in '81. I'm sorry. My first actual sponsored ride was racing in October at the Pontiac Silverdome Racing, the first international. Uh, BMX World Championships. I got on the gate on that GT, my first ride, and I raced Pro Open, and I raced Pro, and I won all three of my moto. I, I won every lap all day long, and uh, doubled on the day, and uh, won two grand for winning the race, and won a YZ80 motorcycle for winning the Open, and was like, wow, this is cool. Wow. And that's kind of when the whole GT thing got going for me, right at that point. And then by the time, you know, we got our first footage, and I, I, I talked to Billy about this, talked to Harry, the first kind of TV that we got was the, the Tropicana Hotel, the Jag World Championships, which is was still one of my favorite. still love to go on YouTube and watch them, the mains with, with you and Saul and Richie Anderson, and just, you know, I talked to Billy yeah, about man, it, that Billy was, Griggs, it's just, that was just, just love the footage. Sprints. <laughs> yeah, I just love the footage on that. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about, tell us about Tropicana, because, yeah, I know the English guys love talking about that stuff. Yeah, about the worlds in December. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was um, okay. So that was in '82. So here's kind of what's weird. Back in the day, there was so many sanctions and so many different promoters, you know. So we raced the we raced the first international BMX World Championships in October of '81. Okay, and what happened is right after that, that turned UCI. So. We raced the UCI World Championships in July of 82 in Dayton, Ohio, right? Was that IBMX? Well, then, no, it was that, that's when it became UCI. So the first UCI World Championship pro race or BMX race was in 82 in Dayton, Ohio. But the year before that was 81 in October, and it was IBMXF. That was like the prelude to UCI. Mm-hmm. So in 82, building up to the Tropicana, we raced in July. And it was like, okay, well, we got a world championships in July. And then we got a world championships in December. And my whole thing was, 
I won in July. I won, I doubled. So I'm thinking to myself, like a month before the Worlds, I was thinking, we have a month right now, and the only thing anybody's going to remember is who won this one. They're not going to know who won in July. Right. And if you don't win both of them. So, so I trained so hard for that race, man, and I went to that race. And uh, and uh, we we got to the final. The place was packed, dude. I mean, I know it was small. The track was lame. But you sit there, and you see, like, 15 people deep around the whole track. It was massive people. And uh, we got on the gate, man, and it was just a super intense moment. We run one lap. I had lane three. I had Stu to my left. I had Anthony Sewell. Can you remember uh, on, on the gate, I asked, I asked Stu this once when I saw him on a mountain bike ride. If you watch that footage on, on YouTube, um, yeah. Stu is like talking to the official, like almost like telling the starter off or something. And if you look at you, yeah. you're just not even acknowledging it. You're just com- completely in like zone, you know? I, I I don't I didn't acknowledge it. What I I'll acknowledge it for a brief second. I just right. said, all right, this dude's getting run off into the infield <laughs> right now, and because I, I mean it, <laughs> because the thing was is Anthony Sewell was the fastest guy. Tell us about in that pro world. open, yeah. Tell us about that pro open first, I guess, before we do double A. You well, guys the crash, pro open right? was yeah. The pro open was like okay, we we're doing our race and we're going down the back straight, and I'm on the inside and Sewell's about a half a wheel ahead, and and there's room, so I go. I'm passing him, and he takes his leg and he puts it right on my number plate and totally <laughs> on me. So I'm like, all right. Well, my <clears throat> my rule of thumb is if you're going to take me down. You're not going to finish the race, ever. I don't care who you are. You're going down. So he had his leg on my number plate. He was leaning all on me, and I just took my hand. I just reached out and just grabbed him. We just crashed. I got up, and I was pissed, and the crowd was booing me, and the whole deal, and I'm like, whatever. You even looked at him. Um, can you remember what you said? You like the, the footage? You can see I that you talked to him. Dude, it's been years ago, but I pretty much looked at him and said, you know what? I'm going to pound your face in. <laughs> And uh, and uh, I said, we'll see you in 30 minutes. That was the, uh, let's, okay, so let's just put it this way. If um, I'm on the gate in lane three, this dude in lane one just ran me into the ground. And I got this dude in lane two who I'd assume just run into a wall to look at him. And I'm like, all right, this is it. We're done. Like, I'm going to be in lane one, four cranks out, or we're all three wrecking. And that's it. Right. And um that's what that's what we did. So I must have done probably five hundred gate starts in December mm-hmm. going into that race, knowing it was a short track. And I was just like when when Stu was was arguing with the official, I was just like, Perfect, this is perfect. <laughs> and um you know, it, it is what it is. I just figured at that track if you get to the first turn first, you're gonna write your own ticket and I just knew that Stu and Anthony were going to be riding the infield before we got halfway to the first jump, and that was it. <laughs> oh, I, love it. I love it. I love it. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Stu. Again, I've listened to it on a few previous podcasts and interviews and stuff. Now, Stu's married to your sister, right? Yeah, he's married to my oldest sister, um, Tanya. Um, we, we, you know, I respect everybody. I, re- I respect him as a racer. We had a lot of battles. We raced all over the country. We raced in uh, other countries. Uh, when I was coming up, he was the top guy. I kind of look at it as if, like, 
you know, shooting for him helped me be who I am. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't have a relationship at all. A lot of people don't really understand this or what have you, but you know, we're, we're brother-in-laws, but uh, we never, we don't talk. I don't deal with them and I don't have any hatred towards the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't have any, any love or any hate towards him. I just, he's not part of my life. And, uh, those, those, that's my past and, and it was good times, but today, you know, we, he does his thing. I do my thing. And, mm-hmm. You know, without getting into a bunch of drama, just, we just, it's just better that we both just kind of don't deal with each other. So it's works out good for both of us. Yeah, I understand. Uh, so winning that, uh, Tropicana hotel and I did read, um, how much did you win for that? Um, I won two thousand bucks for that. And were you guys already getting bonuses was, and stuff on that by then as well? Yeah, dude. The crazy part is, and <clears throat> it's kind of good that you talked about this. And for me, this is not about me talking about how much money I made. It's just that a lot of guys think they don't. They don't really know. Like people say, "Well, wow, um, how much money do they win today? When they win today, what do they make?" And I'm like, "Well, the purse money is so." I suppose it's so bad they don't even write it on the checks anymore, you know? I don't see it written on the checks anymore. But we got paid for all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, I had zap pads. I'll give you an example. Zap pads was just pads that we run the frames, thin, the, the crossbar. Mm-hmm. These guys were paying me 200 bucks a month, and they were like, hey, you know what? This is getting too expensive. What we want to do is we want to pay you $200 every time you win a race. Perfect. Like, well, I won, yeah. and it was pro open right. or pro. And in like '82, yeah, I won yeah. like 45 races. Right. So they paid me like almost 10 grand. Wow! And then, so they they were like, "We're gonna have to do it this way." And then we did it that way. And then after that year, they're like, "You know what? This isn't working." So, right. But we got paid for the pads. I got paid for the pants I wore. I got paid for the grips. I got. Two fifty a month for using grab on grips. So I mean, if you went to a race and you won, you probably made that much with your bonuses. You know, wow. you, you you won two grand. You, I might have made fifteen hundred bucks or two grand from the bonuses. You know, it was cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I guess why we stood before we move on to GHP um, World Championships nineteen eighty three, which is obviously a year yeah. later. It's the first big one in Europe yeah. where you guys came over and. Um, that was and, awesome. And kind of went up against. So actually, you didn't really race the Europeans. You guys kind of raced yourselves. Um, tell us yeah. a little about Slag Aaron. You know, I will give Garrett a shout out because I know he listens to this and he was a huge part of that, putting that event yeah, on. Yeah, Garrett, Garrett's a good dude, man. Uh, every single time I've ever spoke to him, he's super nice, super respectful, and he's a, a super uh, historian, you know. When we went to uh, Slag Aaron, that was my first real trip out of the country to a big place, you know? Like, I showed up. i never forget this. I got I got to the track and got out of my car, and I don't know who I was with. We were riding for GT, so it might have just been Richard was driving, and we were all there. I got out of the car, and, man, within, like, 30 steps, dude, there was 200 kids all around me. Like, they were, like, just there. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. How was that? Um, yeah, go ahead. Carry on. What's it? No, no, yeah, please. it was like stood there for a while and just sign autographs and say hi to people. And um, the racing was, you know, you couldn't even go five feet. And you're just, it's just like you're like a rock star. It's like, wow. I got my, after the ceremony, um, you know, like I got my helmet, all my gear, my bike, everything stolen out of my rental car. And uh, 
you know, normally you'd be pissed off, but it was like, wow, these people are just like jonesing to get their hands on this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it was a good deal. We were racing on the track and we were right. It, it was just, there was so much energy. You know, we raced in the, um, <clears throat> in the pro open final first. And uh, I was winning that race, and I was on the inside. Stu came around the outside of the turn. It's just the same philosophy. It's like he came around the outside of the turn. He got his elbow on top of mine and started digging on my elbow. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I weigh like 165 pounds. This dude weighs like 220 pounds. But check this out. He's going to crash right now. Try to take me out. We're both going down. That's what happened. So he started leaning on me. I started to wash out. I just, we both hit the deck. That's it. And Andy Patterson went around and won, and that was his big claim to fame. <laughs> and uh, and uh, because he was popular, Bigfoot Andy, he was popular. Everybody loved well, him, he had just know? won the and, Europeans. Um, that he was racing in Europe that summer and, and won the uh, '83 yeah. Europeans, beating Tim. Um, and right, so, yeah, he had a lot of fans. I think a lot of people were pulling for him over any of us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we raced the pro race, like another whatever, however long later, and uh, you know you get. I got lane eight, which I'm not complaining about, but I got lane eight, and, uh, you know, you got your lanes that took you halfway down the first straight. <laughs> Clint, Clint Miller had the race of his life, God bless him, and uh, I got second, and Matt Harris got third. It was, it was, today I can say it was cool, but, it, 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 you know, you know how it is, dude. If you go to the world championships and you win, there's nothing like it. Right. If you get second, there's nothing like it because it sucks. Mm-hmm. If you get third, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm almost better getting third. Right. Getting second, you're like so close, and it didn't happen. So true. So I got second. It was uh, it was a, it was a great trip, man. It was from A to Z. It was a great trip. It was amazing because it showed us how big BMX was. Mm-hmm. To get out of our own country and go there and see how much the energy and the people just loved it. It was great. Can you now? You've probably seen the picture because it's obviously been been floating around for years. And again, I'll say the same what I said about Saul. There's a iconic picture um, of you and Stu after that pro open main. You're both kind of cruising in on seventh and eighth down the last straight, yep. and you know, your goggles are off, and you, you're both looking at each yeah. other, talking. And uh, can you remember what you guys said there? <laughs> um. I don't know exactly what we said, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Hey, man, I'm sorry about that, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, here's the deal that people don't understand, okay? It's like, you see this picture, and I used this picture in my book. I did a book last year, and there's that picture I used it. And um, the whole scene with that picture is is that these dudes are Mm brother-in-laws. I got this guy coming to my house for Thanksgiving dinner or, well, Christmas dinner and Easter. And, you know, he's part of our family. It's like, he's like big brother who's always getting the spotlight. I'm like, you know what, dude? I don't care what place I get. If I get seventh, that's cool, as long as you get last. So it's like in that picture, I probably was saying, hey, man, uh, because he didn't make the pro main, right? I was like, well, that didn't work out for you, did you? Um, This is what happens when you lean on me. You lean on me, and you're going to crash. And, uh, you know, that's probably what we were saying. I don't know. Right, I'll just try and pull that picture up, maybe to put with some of this, uh, from some of this stuff for the interview. Um, I guess, um, yeah, moving into uh, nineteen, at least again from what what we got, um, nineteen eighty four. You, uh, I guess, we'll talk about GHP because when you came to England for the Kellogg's yeah. in eighty uh, four, he's on Kellogg's. He was uh, already on GHP, so maybe talks about yeah. the start of GHP. 
Okay. Well, this, here's what happened. We, uh, in 83, I was riding for GT. My dad was making handlebars called Star Bars and he was making frames called Star Products. Um, I, I was just married and had put an offer on the house and the lender or the escrow company needed to have verification of the income. You know, and I'll say this, and I'll just say this straight up. There was no better verification in the world than Richard Long's handshake. Mm -hmm. That's golden. Um, and that's what I wrote for him on, a handshake. He always did everything he said he was going to do and more. But the bank needed to see it on paper. So I asked him, can I get... Can I come in and talk with you? I have to get verification for the bank. They need an agreement, a contract. So here's kind of what happened. My dad told me, and here again, I was like 18 or 19. My dad said, look, if he doesn't give you an agreement for the time you've written for him or he wants you to do more, just tell him no thanks and we'll just do GHP. And I'm like, all right. <clears throat> and um, so I went to Richard and I said, listen, here's the deal. Um, I'm trying to buy a house, they need verification. Can we reduce my agreement to writing? And can I use that to show them? And he says, absolutely, that'll be great. This is probably June of uh, 83. He says, why don't we do this? I'll give you an agreement from the very first day you started and it'll go through the end of 84. Now, most people would take that as an awesome thing, like, holy crap, I just got like an extension. That's great, mm -hmm. right? And I'm sitting there going, wow, that sounds cool. But my dad said, blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, I really need to get just what we've done. He says, look, I told you, here's how we'll do it. Otherwise, I can't do it. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to have to tell you thank you for everything you've done and this and that. Well, he knew my dad was doing stuff. Mm -hmm. And Richard probably knew what was up. He leaned back in his chair and he looked at me. He says, you know, Greg, now mind you, this is a guy that suspended me from his track when I was younger. This was a guy that I'd known as a kid. He says, Greg, I love you like a son. You've done a great job for us, but I'll tell you something. If you decide to go off on your own, I will personally guarantee you that I will put you out of business. No understand? And I was like, yep, I understand. Thanks for everything. And I stood up and walked out. I got all my stuff made in the course of the next month, showed up at the NBL Grands riding for GHP, um, did that for three years or two and a half years, um, and then one day, things just started going bad. I mean, we were getting batches of handlebars that were like, you know, maybe the right-hand side was way wide. Like, the left-hand side was six inches, and the right-hand side was 12 inches. So your bars were like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were, stuff was showing up wrong. <clears throat> um, and, and that doesn't happen, you know? you know. I know why that happened, and it's all good. So we did the GHP thing for about two and a half, three years, and then it wound up just going away. My mom and dad just, I was like, look, I spent a lot of money on this and, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I can't spend any more money on this. Mind you, the whole time I raced for GHP, I never ever once took one dime for a paycheck from GHP. I was riding for co-sponsors and I was, and I was winning races. I think in 85, I, I wound up winning like almost 75 races and that's with pro open pro cruiser, Pro and everything. I made my money on track and from sponsors, but nothing from GHP. Wow. And uh, it, it all came to an end, and we just decided to shut it down. I went to uh, I went to Redline for a short stint. Um, is it cool to get into that, or 
Yeah, I just want to, because as, as the fan in me, I want to, I want to ask you about, um, the, yeah. first of all, I want to ask you about the second year. And again, we got this on TV in, in the UK, and that's why yeah. I, was, I still like to ask questions, because it's something I watched a million times. Yeah. Uh, tell us about, yeah. just, just briefly, the Jag BMX World Championships. Uh, you know, you won that. I think you, you, you won um, the overall in Burbank, as, as your son was born, yeah. I think, that day. Um yeah, and then, yeah. and then tell us a little bit about the whole Rennie Roker thing, if you or whatever bit you want to tell us. You know, yeah, for sure. Um, and this is good. I appreciate this opportunity because, um, you know, I'm just being real right now when I say this, but when, when you read, you know, Gork's top 40 list of pros, they don't account for the history of our sport. They don't account for UBR, NTSA, NBA, uh, you know, ESPN series. So, we were racing in Phoenix in 82 and Rennie Roker pulled me aside and said, Hey, can you talk? So I said, sure. He goes, Hey, I want to have a meeting at this hotel during the week and sometime when it's everybody's available, I have a, a proposal and he goes, can you, can you get the guys together? So I said, yeah, man. So we did, we wound up in this hotel room and um, Rennie's like, here's what I want to do. We want to do a We want to do a Jag DMX pro series and we want to pitch it to ESPN. Well, I worked with this guy on phone calls, visit him once in a while, and by the time 82 was done, it was, in the, it was ready to roll. He had ESPN that, that was going to have a – they were going to air a seven-race pro series sponsored by Jag and Jock's Shoes or Tom McCann Shoes or whatever. And um, our first, the first race was in, uh, was in Miami uh, in the beginning of 83. Yeah, we got that on TV was, in England as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, he said, I'd like you to come up with the rules for the pro class and points and all that. I'm all right. Here's how we'll do it. 80 points for first, 70 for second, all the way down to, to last, 10 points, and nothing anywhere else, and no double points at the finals, and let's go race. Mm-hmm. So we did that. <clears throat> we raced the first series, the first one in Miami. I watched the mains. We raced the second one in uh, Michigan. I got second. We raced the third one. I got second. We got to race to the fifth series in Las Vegas and I was leading points but hadn't won a race yet and then didn't make the main and watched Brian Patterson win and then he was like I don't know we went into to round six and he was a few points ahead of me and uh and so with two races left and being that close to a championship I'm like I need help I, I need I need to get some I need to figure this out and um, I called a guy named Jeff Spencer at the time. He was the trainer for Jeff Ward and uh, <clears throat> David Bailey, several motocross guys. And he was also an Olympic uh, coach for Olympic cyclist Mark Gorski, who won the 84 sprint, Villadrome sprint. I don't know what distance, but he won a gold medal. So I called this guy, and I'm like, I need some help. And he trained me. He trained me for three months. He, I, I hired him 30 days before round six in Burbank. I won all three mains. And a month later, we raced the finals, and I won that, and I won the series. And uh, the series after that didn't, it, it didn't continue. But we raced the whole series, and, you know, <clears throat> it was a hot, hotly contested series. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it didn't go on beyond that. But it's something that happened, and it was great. It's probably the best achievement I've ever had, I think, is winning that series. Because everybody contested it, and, you know, there was really good money at it. And uh, first place at the finals was 7500 bucks, And 
I don't know. I don't know. Is there a race today that somebody got first at and they won $7,500? That's not really a lot of money when you think about a professional athlete, but that was pretty good back then, you know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you want to uh, real quick touch on the coming to England, the Kellogg's? Our good friend Tim yeah, Roch, sure. tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah, I went to the Kellogg's series race and that was like the most horrible experience for me, <laughs> mainly. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> for England. <laughs> No, no, it wasn't. It was. It was my own stupidity why it wound up being horrible. I forget what race we were at, but we were at this track, and the starting gate didn't have anything but tubing. So your front tire was resting against the pipe. Hounds low, hounds it was, low. <laughs> it, it's like, hey, we forgot to weld the grid onto this thing, right? right? Well, it was damp and it was wet. Whatever happened? Well, this is what happened. This is so stupid. I think the first race, wherever it was, I actually won the first race. And then I, like, disappeared like everybody would have thought I just checked out for the rest of the series. Like, where'd this guy go? Mm -hmm. He's going to live off of one race? No, dude. What happened is the next race we're at this track, it was damp outside. There was moisture in the air. The gate, that pipe was super freaking slippery. Well, I'm balancing on the gate. My tire turns. I go to... To put my foot down to keep from falling over, dude, I put my foot down, and instantly as my foot hit the, the ground, the gate slammed down, and that pipe landed on my big toes. Oh. Like it landed on my foot. And I like to thought my foot was broken. It hurt so bad, I could not even, I had to pedal with my foot towards my heel, you know? And there's no way that you can ride like that. And so that's, Pretty much from that point on, there was still like five or six races left. I raced, I think, just the first year. I didn't race the second Kellogg. Yeah, you didn't come back in. Uh, you you won the, in the first year in '84. Uh, you won the second round, which was Wigan, which is one you. The talking second about. round. Yeah, and then there yeah, you go. kind of faded. Then and they actually said on TV that you got sick, so everybody used to see. I got that, sick, Mike. Yeah. Dude, you know you know where your big toe is, where the big part is, just and then from your foot your toe goes out? Right. On that big part, that, that pipe, the gate slammed on that part. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can hardly walk. So the rest of the series, I was just getting like, I was moto fill. And then I wanted to go back, and I got the invite to go back, but that was in 85. And in 85, by April, I was leading NBL pro points and leading USBA pro, pro, pro points and I could not miss and didn't want to miss any races because I wanted to try to win those titles and so that's why I didn't go. Mm -hmm. I understand. All right, before we finish up on it, let's talk about your friend Tim March, your relationship with Tim. Um, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Tim March, man, this is unbelievable. I, I, got, I, don't, I think it might have been at Vegas at the Tropicana. I'm not positive. But... We were at a race, and I, I saw him, and, you know, he was, he was riding for GT, I think. I'm not positive, man. He had a number one plate on. I knew he was the number one guy in England, and I, we kind of looked at each other, and it was weird because at the time, we were both, you know, number one in our areas, and we looked at each other, and we were just like, wow, cool. Like, <laughs> you know, like, we had a, we had an understanding before we ever even talked, and then I just, we started talking, and we had so many commonalities and so many things we could relate to, and it was kind of cool because in that day and age, I didn't really have any close friends from another country, you know? Mm -hmm. 
who were also racing and doing the same thing I was doing, but where they're from. We just became good buddies. Um, we always talked, called each other. Uh, whenever we could see each other, we hung out. And then he wanted to come over in, uh, I forget, in 85, I believe, he came over. And he actually lived with me for several months. And, uh, you know, we used to just... The guy, first of all, is super funny. He's like, he's like, if you're hanging out with that guy, you're laughing nonstop. <laughs> I, such, I mean, I just talked to him the other day, and he's just a super. The way he talks, and 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 he's just a good guy to be around. Right. Um, is he different? Yeah, he's way different. He's kind of like he's like <laughs> he's like a tree hugger from the outback, man. These days, uh, and I. <laughs> I hope he's listening to this because he's, you know, I've seen him, I saw him over at, at the Worlds in, uh, I forget where we were, Denmark, someplace. Bur no, Birmingham. In, in, in Birmingham. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm like, dude, where have you been, man? Did you move into a cave somewhere? He's got oh, a beard halfway beard. down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was great. But, you know, it, it, it was one thing I say, hey, this is why BMX is so cool because if I didn't race BMX, I would have never met him. I uh, would have never be talking to you. You know what I mean? So it's very cool. But Tim March is a good dude, in my opinion. Oh, cool. Good stuff. Good stuff. We all love Tim. Um, all right. Let's before let's let's hop into a few questions. But before that, because you just did mention this, and I, I it is on my list of things to talk about. USA BMX. Okay. USA BMX put out their fortieth, uh, uh, the forty greatest pros, and uh, you right. s you sit there at number forty. Um, give me your views on it all. <laughs> well, here's the deal. I saw that, and, you know, the first thing I thought about was, wow, here's the very first thing I thought about. First of all, um, how, I, I don't, I don't, my viewpoint isn't all about me. My thing is this. How does a guy who's contested every title that's available in modern day, who's won every title, plus two gold medals, not have his own page, and, and be number one all by himself? So that, to me... Um, if you don't, if you know BMX and you don't put Mayor Stromberg's as the best racer of all time, then you don't know BMX. Period. I don't care what Sam Willoughby's win percentage is; it doesn't matter. Sam Willoughby is one of the greatest riders who's ever raced a bicycle. God bless him. Unfortunate his accident, he'd still be riding right now and still be winning. Okay, but the fact is, we look at the data, um, we look at the information, what did you win? Mary Stromberg's on a whole another level, period. The next thing I look at is Anthony Sewell's not on the list, and he's the first pro to ever win two pro titles in one year, and he's our first world champion. Maybe there's not room for him, I don't know, but I just thought that was kind of odd. And the other thing I think about is there's seven guys on that list. I'm not going to name names. They know who they are. And if you know BMX, you know who they are. These guys never won a pro title, okay? If you're talking about the 40 greatest racers of all time, uh, you need to have won a title, a championship, to be on that list. If not, you're not on the list. Period. That's all what I'm seeing before I even see that I'm on 40, Okay. Here's what's the best part about being 40th, and I invite anyone to do this. This is just being real right now. The best part about them putting me 40th, it shows that they're messing with me. The very best part about that is that when you go to number 40 and you see my name, look right above that. 
it's worth talking about what it takes to get on the list. Hey, we have factored in everybody's podium finishes in ABA, and we factor in if they've ever won a world championship pro title or other NBL, blah, 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 and then he puts me at 40. All right. <laughs> okay? All I'm saying is I've won 250 pro races. I've won five world championships. I've won a number one pro title in five different sanctions. And there's guys on the list ahead of me that haven't won one pro championship. So for me, if you know BMX history, then you know that that list is simply Gork's favorites and it's not a legitimate list. Do I care? I don't care, dude. I don't give a crap. Just if you're going to talk history, get it right. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't, don't. You have a great responsibility when you're conveying history to people. So the kid that just started six months ago, who's going to read that? He's not going to read the real history. If you're going to take that responsibility to, to do an article on, on history, get it right, man. You know, that's what, that's all I ask. Just get it right. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that that list is just completely out of whack. I mean, you got guys on there who've never won a pro title period. So to me, that's my biggest right, man. I, I don't care what, what they think of me. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter what they think of me. But when they're talking about history, get it right. Yeah. That's all. Fair play. Fair play. I know. Great. <clears throat> um, let's, let's hop into some questions, Greg. And I guess during these questions, because they go all you know through all the decades of you racing, we can kind of hop into some stuff as well that was we kind of leading into uh, yeah, getting on red line. Um, so I guess first question is uh, Greg Sutherland. He says, uh, what was your best career move and uh, maybe what was your worst? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It's two sides of the coin there. My worst career move was sitting across the table from Richard Long and, you know, not telling him thank you and taking that one extra year extension on my contract, you know? Um, because that was just like a gift. That was like going in to talk to him about just getting a piece of paper that was going to help me get my house and him saying, hey, why don't I just give you a whole bunch more money on top of that? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> how stupid is that? So that's my worst move right there. That's just without a doubt. Um, if we look at the other side, so what was my best? I don't know. I don't know what my best as far as we're talking about decisions, career decisions. What was a great decision I made? Um, I don't know, man. Um, I got, I got, I got a phone call one day in 85, in early 80s, let's play March of 85 from a guy named Hal Needham. And he was talking about, I went up to Hollywood to meet with him and I was the first guy they contacted to do this new movie called Rad. He said, we want you in the movie. We've been told that you're the guy. We've got to have you in this movie. Name your price. I said, well, I'm leading points right now for a championship I can't go away for three months and do filming if I do if I do win this title I'm going to win X amount of dollars I need you to pay me double for me to do this Mm -hmm. oh we can't do that we we can pay all your expenses and we can give you like 150 bucks a week and blah 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 I'm like (laughs) I I appreciate it and the movie's going to come out I'm going to be bummed but I'll be more bummed if I don't contest this title I'm up to win and I'm you know appreciate it so for me that was a good call that was staying focused and trying to do what I know how to do. And uh, there was a good opportunity there, but I, 
made the decision to keep racing. And uh, that year, that was in 85, and, I, and that's my best year. I accomplished the most that I ever have in that one year. So, Yeah, no, definitely a good decision on uh, your part. Um, we've got a question here. Well, not a question, but our good friend TP, Todd Perry, just, you know, just basically says he gives yep. a, a big shout-out and uh, just says how much passion and love. Greg Hill has for uh, for BMX, so it's just kind of given your, your praise and uh, yeah, no. So wanted to mention that one there from, from TP. Uh, I want to say something if you don't mind about TP. Mm-hmm. TP, I love this guy. TP is the guy. Okay, this is TP. I've been friends with him a long time. If I if I called him and said, TP, man, I'm in a battle, man. I got like a hundred people trying to pound my head in right now. <laughs> He would show up, okay? <laughs> he would show up and get his head pounded in with me. We would be back, back to back, fighting and getting our ass kicked together. That's the friend he is. Right. The dude is real. He'd probably and, kick some ass though at the I, same time, man. I don't think I'd want to mess with TP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's a great guy to have on your side. And he's fun and he's, and he's loyal. The guy's loyal. He's your friend, and he doesn't—he doesn't, he doesn't uh, mix mince any words about it, you know. So that's what's the best thing about that guy. Cool, uh, Sean Smith. He says, uh, "Name one thing in your racing career and uh, in GHP business that you would do differently if you could go back in time." Um, if I could go back in time, I would sit down with my dad and say, "No, <laughs> we are not working with Cycle Pro." Period. We would just never have done that. We would have, we would have not had that arrangement because it kind of, it kind of hurt us really bad. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a it's a big wide open deal. We had a we had a deal where they did Greg Hill signature bikes and tires and this and that. And I got a small royalty for all that, and then they were going to distribute GHP products and they were going to buy X amount of product every month, and they filled the pipeline pissed a bunch of shops off that we were dealing with and then they shut it down and didn't buy any more stuff. It was just the worst thing that we could have ever done. So. Right. Uh, okay, one here. Thomas Carter. He says, uh, what, I don't know if you've been following all this stuff on uh, Facebook, Greg. Uh, what's your take on belt drives? And we have an update on that that came in hot last night as well. I don't know if you see all that stuff. Okay. Um, my opinion, and look, I might be an old dude, an old-fashioned guy, but here's the deal. I, I don't really like stuff unless it solves a problem. And I've never had a problem with chains. They work. When your bike is set up right, a chain, it never created a problem for me. So the belt drive to me, really, to me, is just a gimmick. I really don't see any advantage of it. It's right up there with making a frame without a seat post. Why? <laughs> um, I, I, if it solves the problem, I get it. We were all running one-piece cranks, and they were bending every other week. And then they made tubular redline cranks. Like, wow, we were all running regular forks and they were bending and red line made chromoly forks. It's like that solved the problem. If it solves a problem and it creates an, a, a, an advantage, that's awesome. But I haven't seen any information that tells me a belt drive system is superior to a chain system. Right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think, uh, yeah, got to agree on, with you on that one. Uh, one here from Rich Eames. He says, uh, you being the businessman, um, who has no business being in the BMX industry? <laughs> that's a hard question. I mean, that's a super easy question. And then you go off and offend like all these people if I answer it. I'll just say it this way. 
In, in, in the BMX frame business, <clears throat> you have a lot of people that do it as a write-off, you know? And I get that. They want to run a team and they want to be their own thing. Well, they can't really be factory if they don't make their own product. And, you know, Bob Smith is a real successful guy and he needs a write-off. So he's going to make frames and, and he's going to buy 200 frames a year and get a team and go out there. But he's not selling frames, right? But that's 200 frames. When you got like 50 people doing it as a write-off, it ruins the marketplace. You got people who aren't doing BMX frames to make a living, you got them doing it because it's just a hobby. That makes it difficult for guys like me doing GHP or trying to do it as a viable business. So I don't really want to mention names, but I personally know of a dozen people that are making frames right now that are doing it as a hobby. They don't need the money from it. They need the write-off from it. And that's kind of turned the, uh, the frame business upside down on its head, basically. Mm-hmm. Gary, um, sorry, Gary, if I get your last name wrong, um, Anzalone, he says, uh, who are your, mm-hmm. um, do you know who he is, Greg? Um, I don't know right off the top, but if I look, if I go and look and look at his profile, maybe I've seen him, I probably have, you know? Okay, yeah, I'm not sure who he is anyway, if it's one of your friends or nothing. It says, uh, who are your greatest of all five, your five greatest of all time? You kind of said Maris, right? I think personally Maris Stromberg's is the number one racer of all time and there's no way to debate that. There really isn't. Um, look, the guy, if anybody wants to argue that, I just invite them to look at the fact. This is the fact. Maris Stromberg raced the European BMX Pro Series. He's won it more than once. He raced the NBL Series. He won it more than once. Won it twice, correct? Uh, I think he, NBL he two, or three, eight, yeah. two or three. Yeah, for sure, too, because the second year he won it, and then the NBL got put out of business by the ABA, and they went away. Mm-hmm. Um, he's won the UCI Grand, uh, World Championships twice. He's won the Olympic medal twice. He's, um, he's been the Latvian champion more than once. So every single title he contested for, he won. No one else has done it. How does he not sit at the top? That's mm-hmm. the next two, the next two, three, four, five. You you could just open up the biggest can of worms argument. You may as well just get a couple cases of beer, fill up a room, <laughs> and let's just have some fun and argue. Because right. I mean, you know, it's and for me, I'll rather would talk about what makes you in that top five. It's not how cool you look, how many photos you had, and how many cover shots you had. It's not your win percentage. No one cares about that. That's cool. But at the end of the day, what did you win? That's like this, dude. Let's just say you've been, Dale Holmes been a two-time world champion, professional. That's amazing. Hey, you were at that race with probably over 100 guys in your class. You might not have won all your motos or your semis or this or that, but the last day of the race, the last day, the last main event of that day, you won, man you became the world champion. It didn't matter if you won all your motos. It didn't matter what your win percentage was. It was, dude, you are the world champion. My point is, you can't gauge a guy on his greatness by what his percentage is. It's what did you win? What did you stack up in your corner? That's all that matters. You see? Mm -hmm. And 
there's a lot of guys. And if we, if we name five guys, then we do a dis, disservice to the rest of them. I just feel like, how do you win that? I could name a bunch of names, but you know, I'm, I'm just going to say the guy that won one pro title, we're not going to be having him in the top five. Um, the guy that you're only looking at ABA finishes, he's not going to be in there. Okay. There's the, there's got to be diversity and you got to look at everything that everybody raced. That's it. It's tough. I don't want to really go there, but I don't want to go and name names. I could name 50 guys, you know? Yeah, no, I kind of agree with what you're saying. It's like, say there's so many people when you go from two onwards, you know? Um, <clears throat> I just think you got Maris in a world of his own mm-hmm. and that's it. And well, what about Connor Fields? Well, Connor Fields ain't done yet. So what about Connor Fields? Hey, here's what about Connor Fields. The guy is awesome. He's great. Let him keep doing work. Give him time. Hey, five years from now, he might be the greatest racer that ever lived. Let's give him a minute. Mm-hmm. Guy's awesome, you know? Yeah, same as Joris. Joris could, you know? could, could give you it as well, maybe, you know? Yeah, Joris is amazing. I mean, guy's amazing, man. So many great riders, man. And um, mm-hmm. it's easy to say who the best guy is. It's real tough when you have to go on name number two through five, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I've got to agree with you on that. Uh, second part of his question was, uh, do you still have any old uh, collectibles? Did you save any of your GHP, maybe some of the, the earlier stuff? Or uh, was you really into the collecting um, stuff, or at least throughout your career, your stuff? You know, I don't... I, I didn't keep all my stuff. What I did is I've got three photo albums that my mother gave me probably five months before she passed away. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we knew she was going to go. And she had me over, and she gave me these, and I was like, never seen them before. She she kept envelopes that I won money in. She kept photos, awards, all kinds of things. I got those three things, and I have a few items, but like I don't get attached to stuff. I'll give you like a, a little backside to this. I won four Nora Cups, and all they were to me were just an acknowledgement, and I had this cup, and one time this guy approached me, I would really like to buy that? I'm like, Really? So you want to buy it like for twenty five hundred bucks? Yeah, yeah. Okay, send me a cashier's check. <laughs> a buddy of mine tell me. Buddy of mine said to me, "Why in the hell would you ever sell that?" I said, "Dude, it's like winning it again. Actually, it's better than that. I didn't even get twenty five hundred bucks." It's the bonus you never got. So <laughs> I don't sit and hang on to these things. It's like it was an acknowledgement, and in those photo albums I have, my mother has all the articles for those things, and if you look up the history. Of the Nord Cup, I'm in it. Um, I don't need this cup to tell me. So if I can get 2500 bucks for that, I got four grand for another one. I sold every one of my cups. Took my family on a vacation on one of them. Um, it's just I don't, I don't hang on to that stuff. Um, it doesn't, I try to live in the now. And uh, in my whole office, one day I went away for four days to go do a camp and taught and I came back in my office. Um, we have a back house in my office is here. I walked in my office and my wife says, come check it out. And she had like over a hundred frames on all the walls. And it was every cover shot I ever had. It was awards. It was this and that. It was everywhere. And I just got to a point from doing GHP looking at it like this stuff is just, man, I, I don't need to look at this. This is, this is not who I am today. And I want to live in the now, you know? I don't want to hold on to yesterday. Just for me. That's how I think. Mm-hmm. I have some jerseys. I have a few items. I have uh, the first 
uh, I have a, a GHP, our, one of our last ones, we production that we made, and I have one of the first ones, and I have that stuff. Um, you know, so. Cool. That's um, kind of my, my take on it. Obviously, you're uh, big in the, the coaching, the clinics. You're one of the, you know, OGs on the, the clinics. Yeah. Um, so we've got a question here from one of the coaches in England, Julian Allen. He says, uh, what are some of the yes. key elements of BMX, BMX racing that you actually teach when you're uh, out there in the field? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the things that I really, really focus on are proper technique. I try to teach the kids, you know, that, you know, trying harder doesn't make them go faster. That, you know, proper technique makes you go faster. Um, attitude, believing in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, it doesn't matter what you do. You could be the strongest guy out there. You could be the best rider out there. But if you don't believe in yourself, when it matters, then then you can't finish the deal. And you get into mains, and that's great, but you can't win them because without belief, you, you can't get to the top. So my thing is I try to teach the kids and the people that come to my camps, I try to show them how to unlock that door to believe in themselves, that if they put their mind to it, that anything is possible. And I work hard, and we do a lot of focus on that. Mm-hmm. I think you've always been known for that. It's not, it's, it's not just a high-low clinic. It's not like, okay, man, if you just go high and then cut down, it's like, no, like, close your eyes right now and look at with your eyes closed where you want to be. Can you see it? Okay, if you can see it with your eyes closed, you're there. Now go get busy. you got to teach the kids how to believe what do you think about all these, especially now we're in the Olympics? I mean, everybody's a coach on Facebook, and do you just kind of roll your eyes yeah. when you read some of this stuff? What some yeah. of these people are doing? And- I, I roll, I roll my eyes when when people say, "Hey, man, you you need to get the coaching coaching app." I'm like, "Why?" Because it slows down, and you can watch it in slow motion. I'm like. <laughs> I have people that I've worked with, all right? This is just me. Everyone else in the world can think I'm wrong. But I tell people, I don't, I don't, I can't see it in slow motion. I need to see real time so I can see the real problem. When you do it in slow motion, that might look cool, but I need to see it in real time. I need to see it really happening. And um, so I don't need coaches out. I don't need timers. Hey, what do you think of timers? We're going to time ourselves. We use a timer every day. I don't believe in timers. Why? Because I don't need you thinking about your time every time you get on the gate. That's no different than thinking about who's in your moto and thinking about you got to get out and all these things. You want to not think. When you're at the world championships and you're in second place behind stump and you're going into the last turn, let me ask you a question. Think back to this. That time it took you to get from entering the last turn to the point where you passed it at the line, didn't that seem like it lasted five minutes? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's slow motion. Mm-hmm. It's total slow motion because your thoughts didn't get in your way. Mm-hmm. Your training and your instinct and everything came right through. See, the more you time yourself and the more you think and the more, that's when you get in your own way, in my opinion. I remember watching that and I was like, you know what? This dude just did everything perfectly. He let it all come to him. That moment unfolded. It seems like it lasts forever. Slow motion kind of, you know? Do you think, like, um, I always think that, I think the 90s and the 80s, you guys, even more just from what I read, and not I wasn't there, you know, just what I read and what I got from when I actually got to meet and talk to you guys, I think you've got the, the chosen, you know, not the chosen, but you've got people like Sam, Maris, 
Jaris Connor. I know there's a lot of other guys just just mentally strong that can 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 do the work and 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 win the race when it counts. Feels like there's a lot more mm-hmm. of those type of guys back in the '90s. In my era, there was definitely a lot of mental strong guys, and I know you guys as well. Right. You know, definitely that the you know you guys, Ellis, you know, Pistol, you. I mean, so many the Pattersons. I mean, we could go on for forever with names. Do you think yeah. that uh, that's maybe the one thing that they're missing out? A lot of the riders are missing on now. They're just not mentally strong um, compared to like. Yeah, I do. Yeah, mm. yeah I do. So. I believe that. I believe that to be totally true. You know, a lot of times people want to say, "Well, who's faster?" Uh, you know, Maris or like they'll say like Stu. It's like, oh, hey, um, that's pretty easy to answer. There's nobody in sport, in any sport you're going to talk about who was in 1985 better than the guy in 2017. It's not possible, okay? So we get beyond that. But what I look at is it was way more difficult to make a pro main in 1985 than it was to make one today. Because in 1985, when I went to a race, I could look at, but we don't have to even use my opinion. You can look at the stats and you can see how many different people won races back then. You can look in the 90s and see how many different people won races. And then we get to 2017. And after you name uh, four guys, who's your fifth guy? Mm-hmm. How many guys are winning races right now? Yeah, not many. In 2017, if yours didn't win a race, who did? Connor. If Connor didn't win a race and yours was a, didn't, then who did? This is the hard one. Who did? Oh, and this isn't a bag to anybody. Hey, Corbin Chirac came through at the Worlds, man. That's awesome. He handled it. Um, how many races has he won this year? I'm not being mean, dude. This is not meant to be mean. Mm-hmm. But how many races has he won since from January to right now? Does anybody know? Uh, just a few, I think. He's got tremendous talent. If he flexed his brain, he'd be up there with these guys. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just so simple. I think the the world we live in, the cell phones, the right now instant gratification from posting stuff, the being your own superstar. Um, <laughs> look, I had people when I was doing GHP telling me, "Hey, man, can you hook me up and sponsor me because I get a lot of coverage on Facebook." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, I post all the time. I'll post your stuff all the time. I'm like. Dude, I got like 40 support teams that are posting every two minutes. I need somebody who can get to the top. We need to be, we need, we need, we need to be, we need to be getting real results, not, not just post some cool photos. We, we live in that world right now. In the, in the, in the back in the 90s, if you wanted to win a race, you won, you went out and tried to win that race. And afterwards, there wasn't your way of posting because we didn't do it back then, right? Your way of posting was simply going out and doing it. That's how you did it. Now you got it's crazy. So I just don't think that we live in a day and age where the uh, mentality is the same as it used to be. You know, how would Facebook and an Instagram look like in the uh, in the eighties within the pros? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All I'm saying is I've been at races would you in block the modern day era. Would you have blocked Ronnie been, Anderson? What, what's that? I say, would you have to block guys like Ronnie Anderson? I, I would have never even, I would have rather punched him than do anything. See, this is the thing. I see guys at Starbucks hanging out that line up on the gate and try to race each other. Now, I see people hanging out with his buddies. Uh, when I was training Stumpy, it was the funniest thing because he's like, I said, Stump, why didn't you move over on Maris down the first straight? You guys going to get a latte afterwards or what's up? 
He's like, he's like, Village. I'm like, look, dude, if you don't move over the next lap, I'm going to walk up and I'm going to punch you in your head. Okay? And we would have these, but it's like, he was a prime example of a guy who was just way too nice. And he didn't win that ABA title in 09 by being that way. He, he won that title by doing things the way we did him in the 80s. And that's why he won it. I, I just don't. I don't think we can just be the nicest guy in the world and win races. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, let's, let's shoot back on some questions here. We have got one here from Mucho Jones. It says, uh, "What happened yep. to Tory Bailey? He rode for you. He's an amateur kid on uh, GHP, right? I think I always saw pictures of him with like. Do you have like one point five rims? I always thought he looked cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tory was a good kid, man. I I knew him. He was one of the younger guys on our team. His dad was cool. Um, after he got out of BMX. I know he played football, and I don't want to misquote this. There's other people that probably do know. I think he, he got into some hard times, and um, I, I don't know where he's at. When, I never, unfortunately, like, for instance, Jason Donnell, he was on the team with us, and I still talk to him today, and it's great. And Matt Hayden was on the team, and I keep connected to him. I know what's up. And Charlie Williams, I saw him at Home Depot not even that long ago. I see him probably once every other month around here. He lives close to me. But I don't know where Tori's at. I don't I have no idea. I hope he's okay, but I just don't know where he's at. Mm-hmm. Another quick training one here from Jason uh, Tyndall. It says, uh, Greg, um, he's always known for a hard worker, you know, a big trainer. Um, if you had to choose one activity um, that was beneficial to the success, uh, what would that be? Sprints. Sprints? That's it. Cool. Sprints, man. Bread and butter. I can't say bread and butter. Yeah, it's 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 it. I mean, you can do all the training and you can do all that other stuff, but the sprints is what smooths it all out and makes it all come together and gel. I don't know of any top pro rider who's ever won a title that didn't do sprints. And I don't know anybody who likes doing them. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but they but they work. Oh. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. Uh, one here is more of a shout-out from my friend in England, and um, he's always been a big Greg Hill fan, so I want you to, uh, to acknowledge him. My friend Steve Keach, he's uh, repped um, yeah. GHP numerous times over the years. He's a, a long-time friend of mine, so we just wanted to go uh, a shout-out. If you ever do a, a speed seminar in the UK, let him know, because he'll be there. He'll be first signed up. Yeah, I know his name, man, and I know I've chatted with him online. I've seen him over the years, and... Um, Man, I tell you right now, I, I would get on a plane in a heartbeat to go teach in the UK if it could be put together. Um, it would be great. I would love to. Oh, that's cool. Um, we've got one here from Matthew Raymer, Mr. Belt Drive, or one of the guys behind Belt Drive. Um, he yeah. says, can you compare the frequency of injuries from the 70s, 80s to, say, maybe today? I, I don't personally know how I can do that. Um, I do know this, that... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, you know, now that people are clipped in, they're getting hurt a lot more and so forth and so on. But it, there's a lot of layers to it, right? So tracks today are so much faster than they were 25 years ago. Berms are bigger. You hold speed. Guys are going faster. Injuries, um, they're going to happen. I don't know which injuries are worse. Let's face it, dude. I mean, if you hit the ground in 1985 just right, you're going to break shit. And if you hit the ground just right right now, you're going to break shit. So... I don't know where you measure that, you know? Mm-hmm. 
sometimes people are like, well, I was clipped in and I got, and that's what happened. Well, okay, you can't throw your bike away when you're clipped in. So being clipped in, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you, you will get a higher chance of getting injured when you're riding with clips. But I don't know how to measure the timeline between back then and now. I just know that people are stronger, equipment's better, people are going faster, people train way differently and better now. So you got speeds that are much higher and hitting the ground when you're going faster sometimes can make things worse. Mm -hmm. um, Angel from Colombia. I guess we kind of talked about this a little bit as well. We talked about the differences between the pros of uh, your time, you know, you guys to uh, the guys today. I guess we just kind of touched on that, that maybe the mental side. Yeah, I, I think, I just think that, you know, we can, we, we just talk about Maris and Sam and yours and, uh, and Connor, okay? You got, you got guys, those dudes are so focused, man. You see them before their race, they're tuned in, man. They are in the zone, right? Well, see, I see you, you, Alice, Nelson, uh, 90s guys, a stump, and, no, there's a lot of guys. And the guys that are winning, they're in the zone. You know you're not going and talking to them before race. They're just in it, you know? Guys in the 80s, the same way. I don't know that there's much difference, really. I mean, it's tough, again, to uh, to chart that and to say, well, you know, so many people will be like, well, you know what, if, if you took the best guy from the 80s and you put him up against today, you know who would win. I'm like, yeah, the guy from today. Let me let me put it this to you. The 14 expert today, the, the world champion 14 expert, could get on the gate in 1984 and probably win double-A, mm -hmm. period. I've seen it. I train with this kid right now who's 13, and it's unbelievable what I've seen him doing. There's more technology now. There's better training. There's better equipment. That makes everything faster. Mm -hmm. You know? Chris Lee here, he says, uh, who was your BMX hero growing up? And uh, do you have one now? And if so, who is it? Oh, man. Um, no, I, I never really had a hero, man. I mean, the, the first guy that I actually, I looked up to one guy in the sport when I first started. I started, and I saw this picture of David Clinton. The guy was totally pro. You see him on the gate, and you see seven dudes that have ripped jeans, T-shirts, helmets with no visors, and all kinds of look like they're just crawled out from under a rock. And then you see David Clinton, and he's got all of them decked out with racing pants, jersey, bikes, perfect. Everything's perfect. The guy was so pro. So when I, <clears throat> when I first started and I had someone to look up to for a minute, I looked up to him. He was just he had a great image, and he was, like, he was like the guy I looked up to. Beyond that, um, you know, I just, I don't know, this might sound corny, but God's my hero, man. I chased my shadow. I try to compete with with my better side if I can. I just try not to. Uh, I don't have really any heroes, you know. Mm -hmm. William um, Trimble, I think that's how you uh, pronounce it. He says, uh, "Does staring at a penny really help?" He was known for uh, that quote: "Staring at pennies." I think you pass that knowledge on to John Purse. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you know, the penny is just a metaphor. Um, if you could use anything, people used to laugh. I used to think it was awesome because the more they laugh, the more they don't get it. And a lot of guys I raced with, they didn't get it. I actually made a joke one time. 
I took a penny and I put it underneath my crossbar pad. And when the pad was on, you could see the little, you could see the penny there underneath it, right? And it would be right where I could see it. The whole concept was dedicate a certain amount of time to mental training, sit at the desk for 15 minutes, put the penny down, remove things from the desk so the penny is all you got, and then look at the penny until you see dark, just the penny and you see darkness around it so that you can get in, so I could get into the zone. And then I started doing that, started winning a lot of races. Uh, and, you know, and people would be, and, and then I was in an interview with Bob Osborne and he mentioned it or something. And then from that point, it was like, oh, like Mueller would be off, hills off in the corner, staring at the penny. That's fine. <laughs> if it helps me win, say what you want. It's all good. You know, it works. It's training your mind. Mm-hmm. Tony Stillinger. It says, does it appear that Olympics, mm-hmm. or it says it doesn't appear that the Olympics has really helped the increase of uh, the popular, popularity of BMX racing. Do you agree? And uh, what's your whole take on the growth of the sport and uh, the Olympics? Uh, I absolutely agree with him 100%. Um, here's the deal. Uh, I'm a parent. I got four kids. I got four grandkids. My youngest grandkid is five years old and he races. My, eight, my eight-year-old grandson races. Um, if I don't know what BMX is and I find it on the Olympics and sit down and we sit down as a family and watch it. Can I just tell you that I'm never going to let my kid do that? <laughs> I'm, my, my, my idea of BMX is jumping an asphalt gap 40 feet, right? I'm not going to want to take my kid to the track. Now you can clearly look at it. Uh, there's some people in Arizona that have said that I don't look at real data, but here's the deal. Here's some real data for you. In 2008, in January of 2008, the sport was bigger than it is today. If anybody doesn't agree with that, then they have not done their research. Okay? Um, in the United States, in January of 2008, local tracks pulled more practice riders. They pulled more racers. Tracks pulled more motos. Nationals pulled more riders. The Olympics are cool to look at. But in the bigger picture, if you get out of the inner circle of being part of the industry and part of the sport, if you look at Joe Blow, who's 13 years old, and they're watching the Olympics, and they see the racing happening on that track, it's, the parents aren't going to be really pumped to get them involved in BMX because they don't want their kid riding on that. So in, a, in essence, the bigger picture, it's kind of hindered the sport, in my opinion. And the, the numbers will prove that the sport has not grown. It's actually decreased since the first day of the Olympics in BMX. What do you think would happen if, the, if the Olympics went away? What do you think would happen? Or, you know, use um, I don't. I don't think it would affect the sport one way or another. You know, what would really be cool, it would actually probably make the sport a lot stronger. you got, like, countries like the United States, uh, um, Australia, um, you know, the UK, you got these people that are putting like tremendous amounts of money into an Olympic style track that nobody can ride. Like not even 1% of the population of racers can ride on it. Mm-hmm. Is that wrong? I mean, that's that right there. I would, I would say is correct. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have the Olympics or if the Olympics was a normal racing format, which promoted the sport that we're in, like, you don't watch you don't watch ice hockey in the Olympics and then you go to an NHL game and it's different, right? It's the same, man. 
You don't watch Usain Bolt run the 100 meter and then you go to a local event and you see it's a different deal. It's the same. In BMX, it's not the same. You go out and you ride BMX and then you go to a Supercross and you watch the Olympics, it's like, well, that's a whole other sport. That's a whole different deal. So you've separated yourself from the actual blue collar guy. How do you grow it when it's so difficult that the average guy can't do it? Mm-hmm. It's killing the sport. If it just disappeared from the Olympics, I'd probably learn how to do a backflip. Not on a bike. I'd try to learn it standing up. I'd be excited and I'd do a backflip. Why? Because <laughs> maybe some of those dollars that are getting spent to build those facilities can actually be used to build a really first-class normal BMX track and promote the sport on the grassroots level to get people out there to, to partake in it, you know? Mm-hmm. That would be cool. I had a good conversation with uh, Todd Lyons about it. and I think we touched on it on his, on his podcast when we did one and he had a he says, you know, same kind of question, well, what would happen if the Olympics went away? And he says, well, obviously everybody would stop going over, the, you know, racing down those big hills and we'd go back to, uh, we'd maybe go back to the dirt and, uh, you know, piling in a van and, and in race. the road and uh, racing hoop hoopy right. places, but making stories and uh, memories and uh, just kind of, yeah, he thinks it kind of, he says it wouldn't be a bad thing, you know. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be bad at all, I don't think. So. All right, we've got one here from uh, Mike Bags. Um, he's a former Tim MRD, March Racing Development rider. He says uh, it looks like yep. Tim, as we read on Facebook, is uh, on the on the fence or deciding whether to restructure or bring back. I guess is the word uh, MRD. Um, did you fill out your survey first? And uh, if so, what's your views on uh, bringing back MRD for Tim? Or any advice for this him? Is ex- this, this is great because I spoke to him yesterday. And I just told him I didn't know that there was anything on. I knew he was doing it, talking about it. I knew he's been messing around with some samples and stuff. And we just had a conversation. And I just said, "Look, dude, you're um, don't waste your money, okay? Because if you're doing it for fun and you can afford to do it for fun, and you're going to do a limited run of stuff, that's cool. But if you're kind of doing it, trying to make a business model out of it, just save your money. It's a waste of money because there's just too many people doing it." for write-off purposes, and you will wind up spending hard-earned money on this, and the return on your investment, it won't be there. That's just my opinion, based on doing it myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cruising Chris, he says, uh, how much did you make riding for Redline in 1986, and uh, what was your best year, <laughs> uh, prize money-wise? Oh, my God. So he's um, straight, to, yeah, cutting the, straight to the chase. <laughs> Nineteen eighty six I rode for Redline for ten months. Um I don't remember what I got paid, man. I probably I don't know. I might have got like a forty thousand dollar salary and I got bonuses, uh pretty good structure and then uh and then I got called out there in October, went to sit down with Lynn and he says, Hey uh Lynn Keston, we don't have any money left, we gotta cut the program. I'm like, seriously? But you guys owe me like five grand. Well, I'm sorry, we don't have it. We can't pay you, and this is done. I'm sorry. Okay, thanks. <clears throat> I drove straight to the bank, stood outside. Oh, I went to the bank teller, and I said, I need to pull everything off this card. She goes, oh, there's uh, $5,600 on this card. Okay, just can you, she wrote me, she gave me the cash, and I walked out. Here, you keep the card. Now I got what I was owed, <laughs> and I used that to get to the next three races. Um, what, the most money? I don't I don't know. In, in 82, uh, I, I might have earned 100 and, 30 grand, you know, racing BMX. Wow. Uh, I don't know exactly, you know. Yeah, that's awesome, especially back then as well. Um, Mike 
Haggis, he says, uh, you know, I'm guessing saying which was the best. Was it a GT in 82 and 83 or Robinson in 1988? Which which was the best? I guess, yeah, he just said. As far, as, as far, between those two or which was the best of my career? I guess that he, he doesn't really go into detail, so I guess say which was the, uh, I don't know, maybe the, the best. I guess you probably, uh, yeah, you can give us both maybe success. And which I'll, give a two-sided an, I'll give yeah. a two-sided answer there. Yeah. The, the best was in 1988 uh, in regards to GT. GT owned Robinson. It was all the same family. I stood across the table from a guy who told me if I did my own thing, he was going to bury me. I did my own thing. We got buried. Um, I rode for Redline for 10 months, got told the program was done. I basically called a good buddy of mine, one of my best buddies. I said, hey, I'm done. I got dropped. I got enough money to race three more races. I, I don't, there's no one I can ride for. No one. He says to me, hey, call Rich Long. I said, are you crazy? That dude's going to even talk to me? Call Rich Long. I said, I, I can't do that. He says, I'm calling him. I said, all right. He called me back within a half an hour. Hey, Richard wants to talk to you. Go down and talk to him. I said, you're shitting me. Nope. I went down to, to his office. I went into his office. Dude, this is the hardest, the, the most humbling experience. I walked into this guy's office. He stood up, shook my hand, had a seat. Hey, you want to win a championship? I said, yeah, I do, actually. He goes, I'd like you to ride for us. I said, are you kidding me? He goes, no, absolutely. Um, I want to put John Robinson to promote that brand. I said, okay. I got all my stuff dialed in, signed a contract, uh, went, won the 88 NBL number one pro title, went to dinner with him two weeks after the race, had him take me to a great dinner and uh, give me a nice card. My bonus check was in there. I mean, it was like the best experience ever. Here's a guy that was going to bury me. If you were on Richard's side, he would do anything for you. If you were on the other side of the fence, you better watch your back. That's how he was. And um, so 88, that was a, that was a magical deal right there. Mm -hmm. um, another one from Cruz and Chris. It says, what were some of your best memories in BMX? I guess it just could be for you or some of the riders you work with, sponsored. Um, <clears throat> that, that's a hard question. Uh, it really, really, really is a hard question. The, the two memories I'm going to go with, because they're, they're bigger than me, um, when I went to Bercy in 85, I was practicing while we were warming up. First of all, this place is sold out. There's massive people. People are there, um, and they have, they have big, huge banners with your name on it, you know? Um, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, no, so I'm still here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm looking around at the first jump, and I see this, these people. They're holding this big... Uh, probably eight foot long banner and they got my name on it and USA number one pros and that. And I went up to that jump and I, I, I gave them all props and I just was standing there and I had just won the NBL pro title and I was standing on top of that jump with all my gear on. I got a photo. I was there. I'm going to text, I'm going to text you after we hang up this yeah, picture. Please do, yeah. That, that picture is to me, it's just a defining moment because in my career, because 85 was my best year and just the fans were just off the hook, and it was great. That was my best kind of big moment there. And then my other outside of myself moment was being able to work with a guy like Randy and uh, sit there and, and watch the third main in Oklahoma 
and see how it went down and see him win it. And that was just as a coach and a trainer and a mentor, that was like the best ultimate experience ever. You also, um, you know, let's touch on press a little bit. You was uh, with him, you know, for as a teenager, yeah. friend, a mentor, trainer. You kind of did the whole thing with Purse as well. What was some of the uh, success with Purse? I know you was right there in 97 for sure. Yeah. Some of the uh, ABA titles. You know, well, right? with, yeah, with John, it was like I, I wound up at Redline and after a couple of years we had uh, Hayden, we had Boos, and then <clears throat> they went off to Trek and Gary Fisher. I had opportunity to get John, so I, I we got him on Redline. I said, "Look, this is the deal. I'm going to train you, and you're not going to. I'm not charging you. When we're on the road, we're doing clinics because you're winning races. People are going to come, and you're going to help me teach. And you, and and my and my payment to you is training you. So you're not going to get any clinic money, and I'm not going to charge you any money. He's like, "That's fine. Let's get busy." Well, the first. In 97, he came out to my place six weeks before the Grands. And I had a back barn, what I'm going to call, which was all dirt. And I said, look, it's going to cost three grand to concrete this. If I'm going to train you for six weeks, I'm going to charge you twice that. He says, order the cement. Let's get busy. We put all the cement down. We laid it. We got a bed. We put it in this back room, and he slept Rocky Balboa style for six weeks. <laughs> we went to we went to the ABA Grand. It came down to the last main, mm-hmm. and he smoked it and won it. It was unbelievable, man. It was unbelievable. Prime example of a guy. I said, if I'm going to help you, you're going to do every single thing I tell you to, and nothing more and nothing less, and you're not going to question me. Okay, let's go, let's go. I'd be like, hey, John, uh, at, at <laughs> we went to the grant to the World Championships in Canada three days before Sunday, the main. We went to this place, and we come across this massive bungee jump thing. I said, bro, if you do that, you're going to win on Sunday. He said, dude, there's no way I'm ever going to do that. I said, here's the deal. If you do this, you're going to become world champion on Sunday. And he looked at me and says, why do you have to do this? I said, do you want to win? Yep. All right. Took him 45 minutes, dude. He stood there with the strap on, with all the stuff on. Took him 45 minutes before he actually leaped off. Wow. On Sunday, he came out of the last turn, pulled to the right, boom, went past Romero, become the world champion. Mental. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of memories are, are just priceless. Yeah, very cool. Um, okay, we've got one here from uh, James Baker. He says, uh, how was racing in uh, Devonshire Downs back in the day? Now, that, that had a big pro double. I remember seeing pictures in the magazine, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> like, you know, by today's standards, you'd roll out there and, and it probably would look like not that big of a deal. But, dude, you would come out of this uh, this little U-turn gig that you would go up a little bit across and then down and you go across this flat bit and then there was just this big massive jump there was there was no there was no like hey we're gonna go here to train for this or hey we're gonna go there it was just crazy so man it was just like put your head down pedal your ass off and huck that sucker and uh, it was crazy it was nuts um it, it wasn't a big deal because you know you know how it is you know what i mean like if you're in the if you're in the zone if you're at the top of your field you're gonna race what they put in front of you that's it you don't think about it. So, 
you know. Was it big on uh, that, that double? Was it big on today's terms? Would it have been like easy now, or still be still kind of big? If it was on a track now, I don't know. It's it's hard because that's like you know when you're like nine years old, how something looks so massive, and then yeah. you get older and you look at it, it's like wow, that's not really like I remember it. You know what I mean? Yeah, we got one it in was England, way like big, that. right? It's the same thing. It's perspective, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think more so it was because it was all dug out in the middle. So, like, you didn't get to roll it, man. It was like, uh, if you don't jump it, you're on your brakes and you're rolling it and it's taking you forever and everyone's passing you. It's like a pre-berm um, jump. Coming... <laughs> What's that? It's like a pre-berm jump that you see now and you see them yeah, riding pretty, through the middle. <laughs> it, it, really, it, it really was, man. It was, uh, it was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we touched on some of the sponsorship stuff and GT and GHP, Rich Long, but uh, Sean Duncan, Hippie Sean, it says, uh, any, mm-hmm. uh, maybe something you haven't spoke about, is there any uh, sponsorship regrets? Um, yeah, there's a lot of them, you know. I'm always the kind of guy that would do stuff out of, <clears throat> doing it for, out of the heart, not for dollars and cents so much, you know. Um, I had opportunities to ride for certain companies, and I chose not to because I didn't like the guy that owned them, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, hey, only make this much money. It was more like, okay, I was riding for some pant company, and then I had a chance to ride for Arrow, and Carson Bird didn't have really any money, and he helped me out a little bit, but you know what? The guy came to the to the Grands, and he had a jersey printed up with all the right stuff on it, and he always had the right things to say when we called and talked to each other, and he was just supportive, <clears throat> and that mattered to me. So I guess I'm going to answer that by saying no. Because it's a journey, and you live and learn. And I, I got no complaints about the journey. You know? Yeah, the narrow pants. Well, yeah. Even when you look at those pictures of you on, and I'll again, I'll, I'll I'll use some of those in some of the posts. Um, the picture on you on GT with uh, with the aero pants was just so cool. I thought, you know, I rode for a GT bike shop team, and I had aero pants in '82. So yeah, that's I was cool. Kind of a mini, totally cool. A mini in my mind, you know, already looking at pictures of you guys. Um, and let's talk a little bit. I know somebody asked a question further down the road. Um, Gordon Riley. That's why we're on that subject. So Go Go from Scotland. It says, uh, "Who did the graphics and stuff for a GHP?" Because I mean, any GHP picture is just crisp. It looks good. The image, just the look. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. The design and um, everything on you. Right. Um, I, uh, I. It's pretty fuzzy right now for me to remember that. Was it right in that era where I stepped away from GT? My first step I was learning was Arrow. Carson Bird, I just told him, look, here's what I want. And he made it, and he was the guy that owned Arrow, you know. Um, make it simple and make the pants match the best you can. I'm going to go be showing up for the first time. This is my debut going to NBL Grants and uh, riding the new stuff. And uh, I just I let him have his freedom, you know, to do what he wanted. He just did this whole kind of vertical graphic kind of design. It's a little bit different than... Than what we were doing before. So, Carson Berg from Arrow is the kind of the guy that did all that. What happened to Arrow? Um, I think towards the end, it was just very competitive. There were a lot more companies. It was very hard for him to. People were making stuff overseas and bringing it in. You just can't compete with that. He just kind of sort of just didn't do it anymore. He just got to be too much, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, awesome, awesome looking gear. Um, we've got one here from uh, Donald Fisher, I think he's one of your friends, but we've kind of talked about that already, just kind of the GHP thing. Um, so let's, yeah. let's move on to the next one here from Tom Lynch, a uh, good friend of mine from the UK, a UK and European champion, and uh, he actually raced the Kellogg's as well, uh, won, the, won, won a yeah. bunch of rounds when you was there, Tom rode for Patterson and Horro, nice. um, the amateur ranks uh, when you was there at least. Um, anyway, he asked a, a bunch of questions, and uh, sings your praise, but uh, one of the good questions was, he says, how far before a race should you be in the zone? I think that's a good question. Yeah, that's a great question, really. Um, I, I think that as you approach a race, let's just say, you know, today's Wednesday and we got a big race this weekend. For me, and it's different for everyone, okay? Everybody has their own way they go, that they take. But I always believe strongly in trying to unplug completely like, Wednesday would have been a great day to go see a movie. It would have been a great day to go to the beach. A great day to forget the bike and forget the sport. Because just to clear your mind of it, so that you're not thinking about it nonstop, constant, all the way up to practice, and then you practice, and then you can't sleep the night before, you know, like you just try to let it all come to you, and you got to unplug. I think it's very important to unplug four to five days leading up to the race. Listen, you're not going to get any stronger on Monday before the race. You're not going to get any better. You're not going to fix anything, but what will happen is that if you rest, then your body will be recovered, and as a result, you'll do everything better. So sometimes you get better, you know, like less is more mm-hmm. before a race, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I get it. That's, that's, that's how I feel. Me and my friend, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know Paul. Paul Roberts, uh, English guy, lives out here as well. Mm-hmm. And um, we used to, first few years of coming out to the States, we spent a bit of time with Christoph and uh, stayed in his apartment. Yeah. And Paul was never known for a hard trainer. He liked to you know, live life and have fun as well. So we was obviously staying with Christoph, so it was really in... In, uh, you know, pretty intense, probably. Yeah, yeah, I was in boot camp, and, and, and Christoph would always kind of say <laughs> what you said. You know, guys, you got to rest, you got to sit on the couch and... My friend Paul was known for, you know, sleeping in and, and, you know, sitting on the couch a lot and enjoying life, you know, relax, relaxing, taking his time. And he would always say right. when would be, he'd be sitting on the couch, he goes, man, I'm just getting faster. Just what Christoph said, man, I'm just sitting here relaxing, getting faster. It's just great, you know. Cause... Exactly. You're letting your body recover. <laughs> right. So we, all used, the hard work. we used to always laugh at that. Um, right. Another one from one of my good friends, Robert Hyde. A uh, UK guy, moved to Florida, now he's back in the UK in London, grew up with this guy racing yep. and having fun and getting into trouble. He says, um, cool. He says uh, you've got so many badass pictures in the magazines, he goes, uh, do you actually have a favorite? Um, I appreciate that, man, I, I really do, that's cool. I, uh, my favorite pick, really, is a picture from round seven in Burbank of the ESPN finals where I'm going over a jump and I'm kind of tucked. Mm-hmm. Picture's kind of blurred. Um, it's my favorite pick of all time. Not not because of the picture. It's what it represents. It represents a uh, a day where I won the finals, where I, I won the title, but also won the finals. Uh, my kid, my first kid was born like 10 hours later. Our team won the number won the team team championship for the day. It's like so many things when I see that picture. It just represents a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I was actually again. I've got too much choice with your pictures, Greg. So many great images. I've already started to go through a few magazines. I've been trying to go through a lot of my English magazines, where I know maybe a lot of the American friends and you guys might not have seen. So 
Uh, but I actually was going yeah. through and I actually pulled one of the magazines with Burbank. I think it's a cool picture. I know you remember it because it was, you know, I've seen it on Facebook as well before. There's a picture of you guys. I don't know if it's before the main, after, during the race. There's a picture of all the double A's. So not all the guys, maybe the eight that made the main. You guys are all sitting yeah. at the first jump and you've got the flag. And it's just like yeah, all the dude, legends, that's, man. That's before the race started. Okay. That's during the, the national anthem. Yeah, that's so and, Rennie had the top, how many ever guys are there? He had the top, if there were six of us, those were the top six guys in pro points that were on the first straight. He was kind of honoring everybody with the national anthem. And uh, I was only holding the flag because I was leading points. That's such a rad picture, though, man. Everyone, no one's looking at each that, other. You guys are all looking uh, forward, you know? I love that. That picture is, is, is just great, you know? And it's, it's really cool. Yeah, no, that'd be something to be cool if they did stuff like that like now, you know, maybe before the Worlds or the, you know, the Grands. I mean, I Absolutely. think it's cool seeing Absolutely. the full lineup. You know, I love lineup, like, you know, mains, like all everybody coming out the gate. Some more of those 80s magazines right. where you'd see all eight guys, all you guys coming out the gate, all the pros. Like, I used to love those kind of images you'd see, you know. Yeah, those are cool. They're very cool. Yeah. Definitely. Another one here from uh, Bobby Hyde. Um, who, who gave you the nickname The Businessman? <laughs> Uh, Bob Osborne. Okay. And Bob Osborne said something one time and it was done. Like you were there. You know what I mean? I think he called me that just right after I started GHP because I was like in the peak of my career and instead of just writing for someone, I decided, you know, with my family, I decided to start our own deal. And so he just started calling me the businessman. That kind of just stuck. Very cool. Uh, John Rhodes, he says, I know we touched on this a little bit with Supercross and the current landscape of racing, but uh, where do you see the future of bicycle racing on dirt? Because it's slowly disappearing. That's a great, yeah. really great, great question, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what I think is that when Supercross started to get popular and you got all the asphalt turns and stuff and a lot of tracks decided to do asphalt turns and, you know, where do I see it going? I think, I think in life, oftentimes, history repeats itself. I'm really pulling for BMX to come back with some, you know, more dirt turns, maybe pulling for BMX to offer, come out of the last turn and have 40 yards of just a sprint with no jumps. So I've seen some people pedal again, you know. Um, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't have a crystal ball. I do know this, unfortunately, and this is, this is I'm really passionate about this. Competition is a good thing. We only have one sanction in America. They focused on running nationals. A lot of my friends are track operators and they're hurting. And, uh, if, if BMX doesn't change five years from now, there'll be 150 tracks and there'll be the average national will have 125 motos. That's where we're going right now. Mm -hmm. um, everyone I know agrees with me. The only people that don't agree with me are the people running the nationals. I'm not saying this to be mean. I teach every Tuesday night at Sycamore BMX in Simi Valley. I'll be teaching every Wednesday night at Whittier Narrows BMX, and I have in my phone right now, I could pull up 20 different phone numbers of friends of mine. They're all track operators. I know what they're dealing with. I see it. 
I know how many people are showing up for practice. I know how many people are showing up for their local races. I know how many people are showing up to race just to practice on a race night and then leave before races start. So where do I see it going? Either A, it keeps on the current pace it's on and it's going to continue to dwindle, or B, and praying that this comes through, someone else sees the magic and starts up another option uh, as a sanction. Because I really believe BMX, is we all love it. It's not going to go away. It's too cool to go away. Somebody out there is going to decide to do something. They're going to have the financial freedom to do so. And they're going to get the right people together to make it happen. And, and I hope that comes sooner than later. Have you been following much the uh, Donny Robinson, Mike Carruth, the uh, beginner league? What them guys have been doing? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I follow, I follow that. I like it. I think it's good. I think, I think the problem with it, it's, it's a double-edged sword that is, okay? It's really good. It gets kids involved. But now when the kids are involved, if they go to race their local track, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've heard this many times. I've heard people say, man, if I want to race people my own age, i got to go to a national because i only got nine motos out of my local and i got to race. I'm always out of class, right? Mm-hmm. New kids get involved. They get hooked. It's a great program what they're running. But once they get out of that program, they're, they're running free. They're going to nationals. They're going to big races, and it's either sink or swim. The regional program is is not strong enough, so there's like a limbo area. There's a major gap between local racing and nationals. Where does a guy go? You know what I mean? What would, what, how would you, what would you do then? If like Greg has, has a magic wand, has what, uh, has a budget. Um, what would you do? I know. I think, I think, I think for what Donnie and, and Mike are doing, they're doing everything they can do, and it's great. They're getting people excited. They're getting so they're doing good stuff. What my worry is, where do those kids go after they graduate from that program? They're going to either, A, get sucked into the national scene. They'll be the kid a year from now going to the local track and uh, practicing but not racing. Um, so what would I do? I'd start at the top, and I would say, hey, uh, instead of having 60 nationals, let's have, you know, uh, let's, have, uh, uh, let's have 15 weekends, you know, Saturday and Sunday. Those are our nationals. And then let's put a lot of focus on local racing. There's no, there's no coincidence why uh, in 82 I would roll out to the Orange Y in practice and on a Friday night they'd have 80 motos. You know what I mean? 80 motos, man, at a local. Off the hook. Why? Because there wasn't a national every weekend. Now there's a national every weekend. If there's not a national, there's a Gold Cup qualifier. There's a state blah, blah, blah. There's just too much. Mm-hmm. So, right. unfortunately, you get into BMX, you start to love it, and then you wind up in this area where, well, if I want to race, especially if you're like our age, right? Let's say you're 40 years old, and you go out to the locals. You're not going to find too many people to race you. Mm-hmm. If you want to race in your own 41 to 45 cruiser class, you probably got to go to a national, you know? Mm-hmm. You probably won't make class locally. Local racing needs to get stronger, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, just the expense of going racing is a lot now, you know, and, and kids have got so many different options of, you know, um, other things to do, you know. And I think. Uh, yeah, there's, that's that's also the deal, and and see that's also the deal. So it's like this: it's like if you and I want to take our kids racing, and we want to have them to have a shot. Well, there's 60 races; they only take your best eight scores, which means you go to the finals. 
by the way, which is on Thanksgiving, no more family, you know, you're, you're off raising. That's really hard to jump into. But if it was more isolated and there was actually a season, it would be a lot more easy to dive into it. If racing wasn't 12 months around the clock, that would make everything better because then it would be more of a season, you know? Mm-hmm. Right now the season is 12 months unless you live in the East Coast and, you know, you have four months of the year, five months of the year where you just can't ride the track, mm-hmm. you know? Let's, uh, let's bang out a few more questions and then uh, we're going to have to yep. do a part two, Greg, because I've still got two more pages of... <laughs> Still got two more pages of questions, and I still I've got a lot, and, that, and I've still got questions from me as well. So I think that'll be cool. We can okay. still do a few more, and then we'll we'll do a part two. There's still a whole lot more I want to get into with you. Um, okay. uh, so let's do this one here from uh, the master Matt Hayden. Had a good conversation with him a couple of weeks at <laughs> the Grands. Good to see him. I, I think yeah. Matt Hayden's always <laughs> Hayden's always. We talked about it with the Grands, and he's not going to say anything because he's you know he's humble and a nice guy, but he's always overlooked a little bit. I think. Um, with yeah, the, with, yeah. the uh, with the with what is done, you know, winning in, you know, winning, you know, pro races and, and world championship podiums in two different decades, and on top of the factory superstar, yeah. the magazines, and uh, obviously you you know a lot about Matt. You sponsored him. Um, uh, but anyway, here's Matt's question. He says, "Ask him what did you do with the old GHP van uh, with a dent in the roof?" I uh, said so that dent was huge. So <laughs> where's the van? All right, so listen, okay, Hayden. First of all. I watched this dude grow up in the sport. I love the guy. He's got a smile on his face, even if if, uh, if he's having a crappy day. The dude's smiling, you know. He's got a good a good soul. So here's the deal. Um, I'm driving down the freeway. I got these freaking animals in the back. I got Jeff Donnell, Jason Donnell, Corey Bailey, Charlie Williams, and Matt Hayden. You don't want these dudes in your van when you're going down the highway, right? <laughs> I look in the rearview mirror. And I see Matt Hayden doing leg presses, bro. I see his feet on the ceiling, and I see the ceiling of the band just flexing up and down. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm working out. And the freaking <laughs> ceiling is getting all tweaked and bent. What did we do to the band? I don't know what we did with it, but he used the, uh, the ceiling of the band to do leg presses. Can I just throw one more thing about him in? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this- I take a 1994, I work, I'm working for Answer and co-sponsored by Balance, Hayden's Riding for Balance. I decided to take a week vacation and we go on the road to Waterford Oaks to the World Championship. So I'm rooming with Matt Hayden. Now we got like 12 gates and I decided to race Elite Pro, what the hell, why not? I made it to my semis, got fifth, didn't make the main. It was cool. But Hayden, okay, he's made, he's made it to the show and... On Saturday night, we're sitting, okay, if you know Matt Hayden, when the TV's on, you're watching SportsCenter, period. <laughs> you're not watching anything else. He orders a large pizza, okay? He's laying in his bed, he's got his head propped, his back is in the bed and his head is just barely propped up. He's not kicked up sitting up. He's laying flat, his head is just kicked up. The pizza comes, he grabs it, he lays back down, he sets the pizza box on his chest. He's watching the TV, and he proceeds to pound this whole pizza. <laughs> Year, years later, I say, hey, i got to say this, though. You got a second the next day after eating, you know, 10 pounds of pizza the night before. You ever thought maybe just one or two slices might have made a difference? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. But he pounded that whole pizza. We had a good time. We had lots of laughs. 
he's a dude, he's a cool dude to uh, travel with. And um, you know, BMX was better because because he was involved. He's a good dude. He also said on the on the on here on the questions, he says, uh, "Tell us a little bit about the uh, when Purse decided to ride to the hotel at Waterford Oaks instead of uh, riding <laughs> in the car." <laughs> Okay, so we're watching Purse race, and he's not supposed to be racing because he, like, sprained his ankle, so he's got it wrapped. And if you remember at Waterford Oaks, if you're on the gate or the next race back, you see the whole first straight, then you see the berm. It's not a high berm. Well, JP is, like, in this race before Hayden and I are going, we're both watching. Well, he gets pushed over the, dirt, the turn, and he's crashing, but he doesn't want to hurt his, uh, his foot. So he's crashing, and the last thing you see is just his, his foot and his ankle sticking up above the berm. He made sure that was the last thing that hit the ground. And then it's like, so we're ready to go. It's like, where, where's, where's Purse at? Well, this guy is like a redneck, all right? Total redneck. So we can't find him. So I'm like, screw it, though. We're going to hotel. So we're driving in the rental car to the hotel, and what do we see? I'm like, dude, is that, you've got to be kidding me right now. Look, dude, way up there. And on the side of the road going against traffic, we see this dude pedaling with his ankle turned out, but pedaling with his helmet on and all his shit on, <laughs> riding back to the hotel. He's just riding back to the hotel by himself. There's no words for that. It's uh, just yeah, redneck, and same, gonna always be redneck. The same story when he was seen in that hotel with his uh, goggles and helmets on, steamed up. Well, this was the deal with that. I, this is when I was managing him. I said, look, you didn't do good today. He's like, yeah, today sucked. I said, look, I want you to get in your rental car with all your stuff on, your helmet, your goggles, your gloves, the whole night. You're going to drive back. You're going to drive to the hotel. You're going to park. You're going to walk through the casino. You're going to go sit down at the blackjack table, and you're playing five hands. He's like, I'm not doing that. I said, if you do this, you're going to win tomorrow. <laughs> he did it. He did it. I told Tony Donaldson, who was on, on the weekend there doing a photo shoot for us, I said, this is what's happening. Follow him. So we got pictures of that. The next day, he won. The next day, he won. That's funny. Unbelievable. So those, good times. need to get those pictures out. Um, <laughs> let's, let's do a quick one here because that's a good question. You know, my friend, again, my friend Paul Robertson um he's a he's a just a stats remembers everything remembers you know whatever anybody said in any magazine from 30 years ago i mean he's, he's like like us he's a bmx nerd you know just loves does everything and, and yeah and everything so we me and him talk a lot and um one was talking about you know when, you know we there's the goat subjects always come up on facebook every few months um and was talking about who'd win the olympics who should have won blah 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 he he me and him well he did it he did stats on who would have won the olympics um before BMX was in the Olympics, so one of his questions here is, and he's got like top three from '84 in in um, obviously in LA, and then he's got Seoul in 1988. He's looked at who were the fastest guys wow. were in different countries, and like I got to do a podcast with him just to talk about it because it's so cool. If you're like a nerdy kind of guy like that likes yeah, all that stuff, cool, you know. Which totally I did. Cool. So anyway, one Paul's questions is, uh, if you've re- been racing in the '84 in the Olympics in LA, which obviously you would have been, that's the, the peak of one of um, you know one of your years when you're doing awesome. Um, do you feel you would have been the favorite for gold to win it? And uh, I'll throw a little bit more on the on the top of that. Who would have been the U.S. team? Then three three guys. Oh my god. Um, yeah, I, I, man, I don't know. That's like crystal ball stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, in '84, um, there was a lot of guys. It's hard to, to pin it. 
they had Gary Ellis who was coming on in that time. He was getting pretty fast. Um, there's just a lot of people, man. I don't know. Would I have been the favorite? I don't know. Maybe. But that's just that's just paper and opinions, you know. I, mean, I don't know. It's, uh, that's a tough one. I never really look at... Here's the deal. In, in London, I made a bet with my buddy two, two months before London. I said, Stromberg is going to win. He's like, no way. So my buddy from France, call him JMB, Jean-Michel Rowe. Um, I said, no, he's going to win. He's like, no, he's not. There's no way I said he's going to win, dude. He won. Well, he said, after he won, he called me and said, how do you know that? How do you know that? I said, why? Because Maris knows how to win. And when it became main time, he flipped the switch and he checked out. Connor Fields was the favorite. That's a curse, man. Too much pressure in that. When you're the favorite, everyone knows it, including yourself. And then you pressure yourself out. Anyways, I don't know who would have been the favorite. It's a cool topic. It's fun to talk about. I'm so happy the Olympics weren't in 1984, and I would never, ever, ever, for anything in the world, trade my era for the current day era. I would rather be the guy from the 80s than the guy from today. I just would never trade it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, Greg, let's uh, let's wrap up this part one, and uh, for sure we're okay. going to do a part two. Um, how do you want to close this? Uh, you know what? I just want to say I appreciate the, the opportunity, man. I uh, we we only just talked a few days ago, and uh, and, and then this just came about, and uh, and then I was reading all the posts, and I I do want to thank everybody who posted because you know it's pretty common that when you go onto social media, you you could just post stuff, and then you just got you just got a certain amount of people that just come in and just bonehead, and they just get so negative and they bash people, and you know I didn't see any of that. I didn't really see any of that, and everybody was respectful and pretty cool. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's awesome. I'm great grateful to be a part of this. So, if you want to do another round, if you got more, I don't know how you could have more questions, but if you do, I'm, I'll do no, my best. we got to like say there's another page and a half of questions, and I've still got half a page of questions, and yeah, there's there's lots of stuff that will come up from um, from this one, I'm sure. What uh, what you got planned? What you got planned for Christmas? What are you looking into January? What you got rolling? Um, I. Uh, what I'm doing here, I am focused on being a good husband, a good dad, a good granddad. I train every Tuesday night at Sycamore BMX. I run a class starting December uh, 27th out at Whittier Narrows every Wednesday. I got a clinic at, on Saturday the 30th of December out at Redmond's Track with Mike. I'm going to jump hardcore into training and offer a comprehensive uh program. I'm going to have my night classes. I'm going to have two-day clinics I travel to, and I'm also offering a handful of people a one-year hands-on uh, program that I'm not promoting. There's no nothing on the internet. I just, if people are interested, they got to contact me and I talk to them in private about it. But I want to keep in BMX because BMX saved my life, man. I would not be here if it wasn't for BMX racing. I would have been gangbanging somewhere and would have checked out long ago. BMX is magic. So, if, uh, if anybody wants to get hold of you, Greg, what's your uh, info? They, yep, they can they can just hit me up at greghill sixty three at mail dot com. Just m a i l dot com. They can private message me on Facebook. They can head over to Greg Hill Speed Seminars on Facebook. 
And uh, any inquiries, just private message me and I'll get right back to them. Awesome. Thank you very much, Greg. If uh, anybody wants to uh, a bit more information, listen to you know old podcasts or ones with you know recent ones, uh, got them all posted or the links are all up on uh, bmxweekly.com, iTunes, Hilo, BMX Podcast. Uh, big shout out to uh, Bart over at Fat BMX. He always posts our stuff up. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Greg, and uh, look forward to part two. And uh, we'll talk to uh, we'll talk to everybody later. See ya. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Dale. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers.